Eight children in the average class in the UK will leave primary school unable to read well. For just two 30-minute sessions a week for six weeks, you could read with a child online and help them discover a love of reading. There are over 300 5 to 10-year-olds waiting to read with a bookmark volunteer. Could you give the gift of reading this Christmas? Go to www.bookmarkreading.org volunteer to give them the gift that will unwrap their future. Hi, and thank you for clicking to listen to this episode. Before we get stuck in, I wanted to let you know that we have a free event coming up on returning from maternity leave, where our previous Leaders with Babies fellows, all parents who've returned to work um, from maternity leave or share parental leave or adoption leave, share what has worked for them with the hope of it being really helpful to other parents who are about to return from maternity leave or have just done so. If you know someone who could benefit, then please let them know that they can sign up on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash events. And as you know, the applications for the Leaders Plus Cross Sector Fellowship are open now. Every year, lots of our podcast listeners join the fellowship and I really enjoy getting to know some of you better and interact with you and see that you're actual people. You'll get a senior leader mentor, a really awesome group of peers, structured career development support, and very importantly, time to think about what you want in your career and family life and how to get there. If you want to get involved, go to leadersplus.org.uk so you can find all the info there. Let's get stuck into the episode. Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast. I'm Felina Hefti and I believe absolutely no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, amazing people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children. And this can lead to gender inequality at the top and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations on our world. I want us all together to change this. And in fact, I hope that many of you listening to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible, where you make decisions that make our world better. Beyond the podcast, I'm also the CEO and founder of the award-winning social enterprise Leaders Plus. If you want support from amazing like-minded peers, if you want to join our free events, we've got one coming up about returning to work in January, or if you want to find out about our world-class career development program, our fellowship programs for parents, then sign up to our monthly newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. Today's guest is Michelle Baradley. We talk about overcoming burnout, postnatal depression, and leading an organization with empathy as a CEO. If you are affected by any of the issues we discussed, it's important to consider speaking to your doctor. On to the episode. Welcome, Michelle, to the podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to have you here. Let's start with you introducing who you are, what you do for work, and who is in my your family. Thanks very much for having me. So my name is Michelle Bradley. I am the CEO and founder of a mental health charity called The Parent Rooms in Northern Ireland. Um, so we support our parents with all aspects of their mental health. And I live at home with my husband and my three children, Alexis, who's 10, Cooper, who is seven, and Luna, who's five. Wonderful. And what did you used to assume about combining a big career with young children that you don't believe anymore? There were two things, really. So the first thing was that it was possible. <laughs> I just assumed that that having young children and having a big career and being a leader of an organization just was not going to be possible, especially in those early years with my first, because parenthood just seemed all consuming. 
um, and it seemed to take all of my energy and there just didn't seem to be much place for me um, in a leadership role at that point in time. So I didn't believe that that could happen. But then also, I didn't believe that I was capable of it at that point, just because I didn't have the confidence in myself. I think when you become a new parent in particular, it kind of changes everything about who you are and you kind of are rebuilding yourself in a way. And at that point in time, I didn't feel like I had rebuilt myself enough to take on that challenge. Mm. And so fast forward now more than 10 years, how did that confidence evolve? A few ways. So I think once I started getting to grips with who I was as a parent and finding that balance between my identity as a person outside of being a mother, I started to realize that actually there's a lot of things that I can bring to the table. There's a lot of experiences that I have that I can use in my organization and also surrounding myself with other people who just believed in me and believed in women like me who had young families and just having other people say, actually, you can do it if you have the right support. And that support was really, really vital, I think. I think without that, I wouldn't I wouldn't have got to where I am now. And if anyone listening to this is struggling with the confidence right now, is there anything that has worked for you, aside from surrounding yourself with the right people and just giving it time, that you think they could try? Yeah, so for me, what I did, it was a, a technique I learned actually as part of a mentoring program I was on, and it was personifying the imposter syndrome. So sort of externalizing that voice in my head that said, oh, you can't do that or you don't have the skills for that. Wait until you've learned everything you need to know before you dive in. You don't have the experience. You're not going to be able to see this through. So what I did was I kind of externalized that voice and and personified it. So I I imagined someone in my head who I didn't really like very much, like someone from my past (laughs) telling me all those things. And then I was kind of trying to refute that and go, actually, you might be telling me that, but that doesn't mean that's true. And what's the worst that can happen if I do that? And I think imposter syndrome never really goes away. I still have moments where I think, oh God, I'm leading this organization and how am I going to do this? And I still have sleepless nights over it every now and then, but I recognize it now for what it is. And it's it's fear. It's just fear. And you can do anything. You can do anything you put your mind to if you don't listen to that fear and just fly on ahead and mm-hmm. yeah, follow your instincts. Fear is not always a great advisor. You obviously fast forward 10 years from this moment of confidence crisis you've now successfully founded your own organization you are running a charity with staff members it's a growing charity very successful charity that's making an impact on people's lives what's your proudest leadership success moment for me it's been creating that organizational culture for people who have families people who have mental health issues in particular and people who are neurodivergent so everyone in our office we're all parents of young children and we all have mental health difficulties and we're all neurodivergent. So I think for me, the biggest sort of light switch as a leader was when I was setting up the organization. And again, in that almost crisis of confidence, looking to other people to see what other people did, but then stopping myself and going, well, actually, why are other people doing that? Why are we doing nine to five? Are we doing that? Because that's just what everyone else does. Actually, would half nine to half four work better? Because that means the people who are working for us can go to the school run. Can we be flexible with our annual leave? Does it have to be a set number of days every year? Can we be flexible with that so that parents can go to their nativities and doctor's appointments and without that fear of, oh God, I'm letting somebody down. So for me, we have a real culture in our office of everyone kind of looking out for each other, being flexible, as flexible as we can, as long as the work is getting done. So people can work their home lives and their work lives in a way that suits them and is balanced. And I think that has brought a whole lot of passion from the team. It means the team are so much more invested in what we're doing and they're bringing 110% because they feel valued and they feel seen. And we talk about, we don't, well, in, in, in our office, we don't talk about work-life balance. We talk about whole life balance. 
work is part of your life. It, they're not separate. And your work should be something that you feel purpose-driven to do. So that's kind of what we built here is a, t- a team of people who are really driven, but also have that opportunity to, to have a whole life. Mm, fantastic. And can you tell me about the person who really shaped your thinking about what a good leader looks like or what, what type of leader you want to be? So whenever I was in my teenage years, I went on a program called Bolt Leaders in Denver. And it was led by a wonderful man called Michael Donahue and one of the mentors there, Chad Steele, made a really, really big impact on me as a teenager and helped me sort of realize that I don't have to fit a mold and that I have all of this potential inside me that I just need to unlock. And that was really, really critical for me. But as I got older, Michael, who ran the program, his wife, Glenna, she is a consultant and she is all about organizational culture and change and making a real difference in people's lives and using your passion for good. And she is someone that I massively look up to. She is just one of these real empathetic people, but who's able to turn that empathy into something that works organizationally. So it's not just this kind of airy fairy pie in the sky kind of idea of, oh, we're just going to give everyone a hug and it's going to be great and we'll all just look after each other. It's how you translate that so that the organization grows and thrives as long as, as well as your people growing and thriving. So when I see her, she's an absolute powerhouse of a woman and, and everyone looks to her. She's kind of like the shining star. So she's, she's my absolute goal in life to become <laughs> more like Glenna. <laughs> Amazing. So I'm interested in this concept of organizational empathy without it being just about hugs which yeah. let's fa- face it, not everyone likes a hug. No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> do you practically, what do you practically do in your, can you mention one or two things that you do mm-hmm. to translate that empathy while still getting the work done? Yeah. So when we talk about it, particularly with neurodivergence in our office, it's probably one of the best examples I can give. So we have people working in our office who have ADHD here on the spectrum. Whenever we first started working in the office as a team, because we're a young team, we've only been around for a year in the office together before that was all volunteer work at home. But one particular staff member who has ADHD comes into the office. I have ADHD myself, so I understand how it works. And we're both diagnosed as adults. And I remember because of the sort of the career path that she had taken, and experiences that she'd had with previous employers, she felt very much that whenever she was in that ADHD paralysis state, that she wasn't doing what she was supposed to be doing and that she wasn't achieving what she was supposed to be achieving. She was letting people down and this became a huge, big thing. So that kind of organizational empathy we talked about, we sat down and we had a conversation about, okay, well, how does your brain work? You know, this isn't about trying to make you fit into this mold of what we're trying to do. We have goals and we have KPIs, we have objectives that we need to meet. What is the best way for your brain to work to meet those things? So now we talk about high energy days and low energy days. So in high energy days, she is going to go and she's going to smash three weeks of work in two days. And low energy days, she can maybe just focus on making tea for everyone, you know. So it's 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 that trying to find that balance and making sure that on those low energy days, the people who have those low energy days feel like they're not letting anybody down, that that's just part of how they work and they know they're going to catch it up on their next high energy day. And that acceptance and being able to say, this is just how your brain works. And there's no point bashing your head against a wall on your low energy days, trying to get stuff done. That's not going to get done to the quality it needs to be. It's not going to get done in a way that you're going to be proud of and you're not going to feel satisfied with it. So on those days, focus on the things that don't take a lot of energy. And then on your high energy days, bash out the rest of it and we've we've tracked it and it works so well and I think even just that sense of being seen has made a huge huge difference so yeah that that empathy comes from understanding people where they are and matching that up with where we need to be and finding a way that works rather than that stock being nine to five nose to the grindstone you're not allowed to take a break 
it's about understanding people and how people work. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So you're obviously an expert on mental health now, particularly parental mental health. Have you always been an expert on this? As in, I presume you haven't, but basically <laughs> I'm trying to ask, were you always quite clued up that it was important to look after people's mental health or did you have a change of mind moment at some point? So I've always experienced anxiety and panic attacks since I was a young child and there's been sort of previous traumas there. So I've always had an awareness of it, but it wasn't until I had my first daughter that everything kind of just went on a whole other level of mental health. And my light bulb moment came when my daughter's about a year old and out looking for all sorts of help with my GP, with charitable services, with lots of different places and just couldn't find what I needed for me. And I had this moment where I thought, and it was part of that identity crisis as well, where I thought, I've had a baby and now I'm not a person in my own right. People were looking at me to go, okay, well, we can help you with this and that will help support you and your child. Or we can support your child with this because your mental health is having an impact on that. And your priority should always be your child. And even within sort of social circles, you kind of get that idea of, you know, you need to pull yourself up out of this because, you know, your child needs you. And I had this moment when my daughter's about a year old and I went, I fully understand that my child needs me. I fully understand that I'm responsible for this person. But what about me? Who's looking at me and going, I need to look after you (laughs) outside of just being a parent, like just you as a person. So I started, I set up a support group at that point with other parents. And and the whole idea around it was there's lots of services out there to help our children as there should be. But as people in our own right, unless we are feeling better within ourselves, we can't do anything for our kids. It's, it's, It's so, so difficult. So that's when... The parental mental health stuff started coming out and I started learning more about that and researching and listening to the people who were in the group and what they were saying and then my own experiences as well. And that's where the whole idea of the parent rooms came from. It was it was about taking the parent and putting them in the center. It wasn't taking the family and putting them in the center, which is what happens with a lot of organizations. Like I say, rightly so, everyone needs support, but it was about actually taking the parent and going, you are our priority, you are our focus, everything else is secondary we're putting you first because that's what I needed and that's what I wanted. Mm, mm. I can imagine that being very powerful, especially also because there's such a cliff, isn't there? I don't know if it's the same in where you're based, but generally you've got the very intense support by medical professionals. You see your midwife all the time while you're pregnant and then first few weeks after the baby's born and then suddenly you're out there on your own. (laughs) That's it. And you're there on your own. And even if you go back and you say, I need additional support, like like Northern Ireland is particularly bad. We're lagging behind most of the UK in terms of supports for parents um, and support for mental health in general. And our whole legacy of conflict and trauma and mental health rates here are very, very high and we just don't have services. So like you say, whenever I went back, like even on when my health visitor came and my second and third pregnancies, when I knew everything there was to know about postnatal depression, I knew I was struggling. And they would sit down and they would do the Edinburgh scale for depression with me. And they would go, oh, well, you don't really score high enough for depression. And I'm like, but I know how I feel. Or I would go to my GP and they would go, oh, we can maybe send you for counselling in a year's time. And that's just not enough. So 80% of parents here don't have access to any kind of additional support. And most of it is like tied in with, and this is not me putting down any other words, but like sure starts. It's, It's about family. It's about children. It's about giving children the best start and their support there for the parents, but it's always tied in with something else. So what we have created here is, you know, the parents come to us, we provide childcare so they can have a break and they can go and do something for themselves. And it's just, it's transformative. It really, really is. Oh, oh my goodness. I can imagine. I wish you were in my area when when, uh, when my little one was very young. Coming back to your own experience of, of being hit by this, and it sounds like you didn't expect 
it to be such a difficult experience. And, and you clearly have shown an, a huge amount of productivity to get out of it by essentially setting up your own support network. Is there anything looking back now, 10 years, anything that you would advise yourself to do in that situation? Yeah, I think the best advice that I would have given myself was to keep talking about it, just keep talking about it. Even if people weren't listening, keep talking about it because the thoughts that are in your head whenever you're in a depressive episode or an anxious episode, the thoughts that are in your head aren't necessarily true or in perspective. And it's not until you say it out loud that you realize, actually, maybe that's not as bad as it, it, it seems to be. I kind of I use an analogy quite a lot of having a nightmare. You know, you have a nightmare and you wake up and you're really shaken by it and like it shakes you to your core. And then you start telling someone about it and it sounds so ridiculous, <laughs> you know. So for me, it was it was talking about it. And I just kept talking until someone listened. And it took a very long time for people to actually get it. And it was really difficult as well, because whenever you are going through a mental health episode, your energy is very, very low and you don't feel like you can fight. But that's the most important time to fight, because if you don't do it, no one else is going to. So, yeah, talk, talk to everybody, talk to anybody, talk to health professionals, talk to friends, talk to family and just keep saying it until something because something will appear. Eventually, you'll say something to the right person. Mm -hmm. That sounds like really good advice. It's also a very courageous thing to do, isn't it? Because it's so much easier to hide. So that's the thing with, with mental illness and particularly depression is that it wants to isolate you. It wants you to be on your own because when you're on your own, you're easier to, to control. <laughs> so there's a really great book by Johan Harry called Lost Connections. And it's all about how connecting with people is basically the cure and the salve for mental illness. It's, it's being connected to other people. And, and the first thing you want to do whenever you go into depression is shut yourself off. You don't want to talk to anyone. You don't have the energy to talk to anyone. And by just have, give, giving yourself that little bit of a push and saying, I'm just going to keep opening my mouth here until either these thoughts feel less scary or I speak to someone who gets it. And when you speak to someone who gets it, that is transformative. And that's that's one of the things we do here at the partners. Peer support is kind of at the, at the center of everything. When you can walk into your room and say, I feel like a really crap mom today and I feel like I don't want to get out of bed and I don't want to look after my kids and I'm exhausted and I, I just want somebody to mind me. I just want someone to baby me for a little while and someone else goes, oh my God, I feel exactly the same way. Thank you for saying that because now we all have permission to say the things that are in our head that we've been told we're not allowed to say as parents. <laughs> you know, mm. like it, it's okay some days to not like your child. It's okay some days to want to run away and not be a parent at all. And when you're in a room with other people who get that and it's safe for you to, to say those things out loud and not be judged, it's absolutely incredible the difference that it makes. And then you almost come away invigorated and ready to be a better parent. <laughs> <laughs> mm, that is so true and what you're saying just makes me think of how we've engineered life for new parents because essentially what many of our listeners would have been and are really high performing professionals and then all of a sudden you're thrown into a situation where if your partner is not taking share of parental leave you're engineered to be alone because you're at home with the baby you actually have to make an effort to leave that house so that you have got that level of loneliness. And then also, like you say, there's not the support around you. So it's almost like there's already the social engineering. I don't know if that's a word even. But, yeah. th you know, yeah. there's a structure to that facilitates depression. And I really love what you're describing, which is basically you're creating an antidote and you're creating a new structure. And actually, now I think of it, we don't have the parent groups, but I think with every one of my babies, I've never been part of NCT, although I think it's a great charity. 
with every one of my babies, and I have three now, I've always found a group of peers. So with my middle one, one of my friends organized baby singing once a week at her house for us. And we did like 10 minutes of baby singing and then just chatting. And it was so, so nice. And it was a complete lifesaver. And I think that that is, you do need that. And I love that you're putting that structure on for people. That's brilliant. You clearly need to expand to the UK, Michelle. Well, that's that's the next time, global domination next. (laughs) But yeah, you're right. We do have this kind of social structure where parents are, yeah, they're left alone. There's many other cultures where parents are mothered for the Mm. the first, at least the first 40 days. And there is a whole village around and, and we don't have that village anymore. We've let that go. And the loneliness is the worst part, I think, because whenever you're at home alone with a baby, especially if it's your first baby and you're not 100% sure what you're doing or if you're doing it right. And then we have this whole image, like everywhere you look, there's images of how you should be as a parent. And when you don't meet that standard, then you're like, well, what am I doing wrong? What is wrong with me? Why did I snap at my child? Why do I feel so angry? Why do they have to eat 15 peanut butter sandwiches and leave the crust all over my floor? Like, why is this? You know, you just get so bogged down in this. Um, I'm not meeting expectations. I'm doing it all on my own. Oftentimes your partner is away working or you're a single parent and, you know, it just feels like like you're carrying everything. And on top of that, you have nothing for yourself. And I think that's why people in high performing jobs, like the people who listen to this podcast, work is so important because it gives you a sense of purpose outside of that. It gives you connection to other people. It gives you connection to something that you're passionate about. And that makes you a better parent. Eight children in the average class in the UK will leave primary school unable to read well. For just two 30-minute sessions a week for six weeks, you could read with a child online and help them discover a love of reading. There are over 300 5 to 10-year-olds waiting to read with a bookmark volunteer. Could you give the gift of reading this Christmas? Go to www.bookmarkreading.org volunteer to give them the gift that will unwrap their future. Let's talk about burnout. Is this something that you have experienced yourself? Oh, yes. <laughs> In the early days of the parent rooms before I, I took on the paid position of CEO last October, but we've been going since 2014. I was working in another job a part-time job and then I had my three kids at home and then I was doing work out building the private rooms in the evening so most nights I'd be working till 1am and then getting up at 7 or 8 the following morning and starting the whole process again and it got to the point where this time last year I had to stop doing a lot of the things that I was doing and focus on basically just funding I was like I need to have a salary I need to quit my job I need to be able to have a balance here my kids weren't seeing me I was stuck to my laptop 24 7 and I remember one time my daughter came in to me and she said something. I didn't even hear what she said. And I said, I'll be there in a minute. And she said, you always say that. And I'm like, but I will be there in a minute. And she went, but you said that yesterday and I'm still waiting. And I was just like, oh God, (laughs) you know, it's just all they see is the back of my head and laptop screen. So that burnout that it got to me because of how it was affecting kids. But then for myself, I was starting to lose my passion for it. I was thinking, you know, I just, I should just give this to someone else to take over. It's just, it might be my baby, but I, I don't want to raise this baby. <laughs> you know, I put all my focus into doing funded applications to get money for my salary, which then came through. And then now it's been about building the team. So right now I have a really, really good life balance because I can share and I can delegate and I have a team around me who can help out. But a big part of it has also been at home speaking to my husband and saying, we've talked about the mental load. We've talked about the physical load and now it's time to step up. Here's the things I'm not going to do anymore. And here's the things I am going to do. And here's the things that we need to work 50-50 on. And he, he was great. He was able to take a lot of stuff off my plate and it's still a process. We're both still learning, but it's being able to say, I'm done with this and I need help. 
Mm-hmm. Something silly. Like whenever I was working to one in the morning, I said to my husband, I'm just I'm refusing to do laundry. Can't do it. Don't have time for it. Not don't like it. <laughs> and he he has been doing the laundry ever since. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's small things like that, recognizing, you know, what's what's mine to take up and what's mine that other people can do. Mm. Um and not being afraid to let go of, of certain things. It was difficult mm. doing it all. And then all of a sudden people are like, Do you want me to take this off yet? I'm like, oh God, <laughs> really? But it's a it's a process. It's all learning. As long as you're open to learning, it's yeah, it works. Mm-hmm. I think it is so interesting. Isn't it? Obviously, I, I found my own organization as well. And so letting go, it, it's so it's oh, really scary. it's really scary isn't it I, I imagine it's like when your kids get to teenagers this is what it's going to be like you know when they start wanting to go out the weekends this is kind of a similar feeling where you're like oh no, please just stay here with me <laughs> exactly but I see that so often with with our fellows as well so the people on our fellowship program that sometimes you know you have too much on and of course sometimes it's the organizational setup but sometimes it really is also you who doesn't want to let go of the control not just of the washing heap although I definitely am letting totally 100% go I am not dealing with the washing at all at home probably my partner might not be delighted about that I because he does slightly more on that front than me but anyways I think you do have to let go your own control isn't it even you if you delegate a task but you don't let people own that task you're never going to really feel lighter yeah that's it and I think it's it's about building trust if you have a team you can trust it becomes a lot easier and sometimes it is about just gritting your teeth and going okay I'm just gonna see what happens we're having conversations the minute one of our staff members is is hoping to move up into an operations role and doing a lot of program planning and which means my role is changing I'm stepping away from operations and moving more into the sort of strategy networking major donor kind of stuff we've been having very very honest conversations so we sat down we had a meeting I was like okay here's all the things that I do that eventually you're going to do and it terrifies me that you're going to do it and that's not because I don't trust you and that's not because I don't think you're going to do a great job I really do think you are but just be aware I'm feeling really uncomfortable so if I have a little bit of a wobble it's not you <laughs> it's it's definitely me and being very vocal about it and then when I did have a wobble I was like I'm having a wobble I don't like it I don't like that I have to go and do this and now you get to do that I don't like it and that's just how it is and and she was able to say I totally understand that and what can we do to make this be more comfortable for you too and for me and we will have those really really frank conversations and I trust her 100% so I know she's going to do a really amazing job and I've been offloading some of that stuff to her already so that she's getting used to it and it's a slow transition but I think there's there's a huge part of it about it as well about what I expect myself to do and how much of the stuff I'm doing do I actually need to be doing even outside of someone t- taking that on like how do do I need to be doing the bookkeeping can I, or can I get someone in to do that but it's like you say it's that that control you know if I don't know where every penny is it makes me very nervous <laughs> but I know that eventually that's going to have to happen yeah it's tricky it is it, it is a bit it feels a bit like letting go of a child it feels like the child is growing up and getting its own personality and getting its own sort of sense of power and control and self-drive and I'm just now here to steward <laughs> and you know help when things begin to maybe slip or yeah it's it's very, very different different from what it was in the beginning when it felt like a, a baby that needed constant mm. care. Interesting. And it's interesting also about how you talked about getting out of the burnout moment. So it sounds like you really did the practical things, i.e. you stopped mm. doing the washing, you had a chat with your husband or partner to agree what, how to develop the mental load, and you, mm-hmm. you decided to go for funding, which obviously you successfully did, which is now yeah. where you, your charity with staff and with a growing 
growing charitable, by your growing charity. But is there anything else that you did in order to get out of that burnout moment? The most important thing for me is being able to listen to my body and recognize when I need rest. So I know today, so today I'm dosed with a cold and about to move house. Things are a little bit hectic and work. Christmas is coming up and my body is starting to shut down. And it feels very much like it did this time last year before I went, I, I got the funding to take on my salary where my body was just like, you have to stop. Like there's, you can't keep doing this and being able to listen to that and be able to go right. Okay. There's something not quite right here. Is it because I, cause I, I'm, I have ADHD. Like I say, I get stuck in hyper-focus mode. And sometimes I don't really realize how hard I'm working until my body literally can't take anymore. And um, we'll just shut down. And being able to recognize those little moments, like this morning I woke up and I was like, oh, I have a bit of a tickly throat and a bit of a runny nose. And I know the kids have had a cold and and I'm sleeping on a mattress on the floor because my bed is packed away on a storage van. And just being able to recognize that actually today is maybe a day to take some rest. So I know like after I finish up with yourself, I have one more meeting and then I'm going to go home and I'm just going to stop for the day. I'm going to have a cup of tea and I'm going to watch some crap TV and just stop for the day allowing myself to to take that time and not feel guilty about it because I think there's there's times when we go oh we're sick and we have to stop and then we lie in bed sick going but I need to do this and I need to do this and I need to do this and your brain doesn't switch off and now I'm, I've learned very much that actually if I don't switch my brain off now and I don't take a day or two just to try and rest and get over this this is going to go on for weeks and that doesn't help anybody and I also have to role model that to to my colleagues and to my kids as well you know that Sometimes it, the, work, it will, the work will continue. The world will keep spinning. I am not that important, <laughs> but my health is. And if I stop and I allow myself to fully, properly rest, I know that in a day or two, I'll be up and at it again. Whereas if I don't, it will have such a long knock-on effect. And it doesn't just affect me. It means that my team are working harder. It means my kids aren't getting everything from me that they need. It means my partner and me maybe <laughs> argue a bit more often or we're both more tired because... There's no point just keep running on a treadmill for the sake of it. You just have to learn to stop. Mm. It sounds like that's so easy for you to say. And it sounds like you're really confident (laughs) making that decision. (laughs) I imagine. I imagine. I mean, how did you switch from It sounds like you, you know, you really are very, very driven person and you're getting stuff done. You don't mess about. How do you, how did you learn to rest? Because that's a massive thing to say, oh, well, actually, no, I'm now taking a day to rest. How yeah. did you how do you even go about that? Practice, practice, practice. There was a lot of self-talk and a lot of distractions. So the first the first few times that I was like, right, I just actually need to take time off now and just chill. A lot of it was I couldn't be left alone with my own thoughts. So I would listen to an audiobook for like hours because then my brain couldn't think of all the stuff that I had to do. Um, now I listen to the audiobook, it triggers me to fall asleep. I'm asleep within three minutes because I've just trained my brain now that when I'm listening to an audiobook, our brain is off. That's it. We're done for the day. <laughs> but a lot of it was about self-talk. It was about every time a thought jumped into my head going, oh my God, you need to do that. It was like, okay, well, do I actually need to do that? Is it something I can give to somebody else or can it wait? If it doesn't happen, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? And basically, like I say, reminding myself that I'm not that important. Work gets done one way or the other. And it's when we talked earlier about those kind of high energy days and low energy days, it's the same. Today is a low energy day. I'm not going to get work done to the standard that I want to get it done. So do I try and do it to a lower standard or do I just wait? And usually the answer is just wait. And mm. it takes practice, but got there. <laughs> mm, fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you so yeah. much for sharing it so openly. Has your own mental health experience changed you as a leader, would you say? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's made me so much more aware of, of everything sometimes it can be quite inconvenient because you know I have a lot of empathy for other people and sometimes it's easier just to be like 
you're doing that because you're, you know, a pain in the arse. <laughs> and not because you have your own internal drivers. Now I'm much more aware of what other people are going through and what drives other people's behaviors. And it just makes, it makes everything much clearer. Like for example, we did training this week around adverse childhood experiences and trauma-informed practice and recognizing, okay, we might have a parent or a staff member who comes just with this. And what do you think the motivation is behind that? And when you can put yourself in someone else's shoes, because if, you, if you've never struggled with your mental health before, it's very, very difficult to understand it. It's, well, why are you thinking that way? Why can't you think your way out of it? You know, why can't you just be like, oh, I'm not depressed anymore. But when you've had that experience and you can see it happening for other people, it makes it easier to help them to find ways of managing better. It help, it's, it's easier for you. Like, for example, when it comes to staff and motivation and getting work done, we understand that there's going to be times that that's not going to be possible. And I think with myself and my previous experiences with other employers, that hasn't always been understood. It's it's a case of, well, you're just not doing your work and that means you're a useless employee and you're going to be disciplined. Where actually, if we can understand people's drivers and motivators, it makes it easier to manage that whole process um, and doing it in a way where, where they feel heard and valued and then they're more loyal, I suppose, for want of a better, I hate that word, but you know what I mean? They're more loyal to the, the mission of what we're trying to achieve, but they feel like they're part of it. They feel like it's not just a job, it's not just a tick box. And we use that empathy every day. We talk about it and we have reflective practice and how we help our parents. And, you know, the thing with working in mental health charities, you can often be triggered as well by other people's stories. So we can have parents coming in and it's very easy to go, oh, well, I had that experience and let me tell you about that experience and let me tell you what helped me and here's what fixed me and wanting to fix people. And that's not what it's about. So having that awareness of, okay, whenever I was struggling, did I want someone to come along and fix me? No, I wanted to fix myself. I just needed someone to be there to kind of hold my hand while I did it. And when you can put yourself in other people's shoes in that way, it just it just makes all the difference in the world. Mm. I think it's absolutely fascinating how you're talking about that need to get that empathy again in, into the day-to-day life of your work. But also you're, a, you're running a charity that people rely on. If you don't yeah. deliver, there will be mm-hmm. parents who are potentially in distress, who are not getting the support they expected. Your funders, if the funding report is not done... They're not exactly. going to fund you next time round. So how yep. do you square that? I mean, I'm really intrigued because it sounds so brilliant. And I'm sure everyone listening would love to work at parent rooms. But how do you square that with the pressure to deliver, which in my experience is higher often in a charity oh, yeah. than when you deal in a massive organization where there's usually someone who can help out? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, because... It seems to me, well, from from the experience I've had this last year with managing the team, it seems to me that the more emphasis we put on the empathy and working with people, the more likely they are to do the work because they want to. It's like, okay, I'm I'm on the receiving end of this kind of support as well as the parents that we're supporting. Like I'm I'm feeling held and I'm feeling understood and and I want to, I want to work. I want to go back to work. So we have very very low numbers of sick days. We have very we we've, we've never missed a target. We've overachieved in all of our targets. We've met all of our funders' requirements and then some. Last year, we were hoping to support 245 parents. We ended up supporting 678. So, you know, the productivity is through the roof. But a lot of that is because we, even on days where maybe the team aren't feeling great or, you know, there's maybe low, those low energy days, they're driven to come back and do better. They're driven to come back and do more. So when they come back and they're ready and they've had, like I said, it's, it's, if I, can, I can help my team have one or two days of rest and that offsets three weeks of sickness. You know, so when they come back, they have that energy, but also they're really, they're really motivated to do the work because they're receiving the benefit of the work. <laughs> you know, does that make sense? <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
where can people find out more about the parent runes and about your work and how how can they get involved to support your work? So the best place is probably our website, which is theparentrooms.co.uk. In there, you'll find out all about how we work, what our model is, what events we have on, lots of different things. And for anybody who wants to, who, we support parents in Northern Ireland. Like I say, hopefully we'll expand other areas, but at the minute it's people in Northern Ireland, but they can self-refer in or it can be self-referred in by a health professional. And what we do is we take parents and we meet them where they are and we help them create an action plan and then put in place programs to help support them on their journey. So it's all about them designing their own recovery and us just kind of walking along with them so but you can find a lot out about the website for anyone who would like to support us we always welcome donations because you know current economic crisis and <laughs> as you can imagine the third sector is taking a bit of a hammering but there is a donate button on the on the website as well and they can find us on just giving too but if anybody wants to find out more have a conversation i'm happy for my contact details to be shared and, and have conversations fantastic thank you very much i would like to finish with two practical tips one for someone who's going through a mental health difficulty right now and doesn't know where to turn doesn't have parent rooms and one practical tip for someone who knows a friend who is going through a tough time right now so if you're going through a tough time right now I would say find a peer group so whether that's joining a Facebook group or joining your local coffee morning find find a group that that you know there are going to be people there who are having the same experiences and talk about them what you will find is a lot of those people will have access to resources that you might not have thought of, or, you know, they might know of a service or a charity, or it might just be there to have a conversation and have a listen. That's probably the biggest one, connect with your peers, because your peers will be your biggest support the whole way through it. For someone who is caring for someone who is struggling with mental illness, the biggest, biggest practical tip is take time every day, just check in. My husband and I used to have this thing on our fridge. So there'd be days whenever my mental health was particularly bad and I couldn't talk about how I was feeling. So he never knew what he was coming home to at the end of the day. So we had a scale on our fridge of not to 10, just a bit of paper with not to 10 written on it. And we knew that not was I'm feeling suicidal and I want to take my own life. And 10 was I'm having the best day ever. And there was a little magnet and I would just put the magnet on whatever number I felt at that moment so that he could come in, look at the fridge, know what kind of day I'm having and go, right, okay, today she's at a five. I'm going to go and run her a bath. I'm going to take care of dinner and bedtime with the kids and let her have a rest. Or today is an eight. Great. We're going to go for a walk and we're going to, you know, have a chat. And it's going to be wonderful. Today is a one. I need to phone the GP and just have those parameters all kind of set out in advance so that you don't have to have big conversations around it necessarily. You can just check in and, and know where everything is happening on the same day. So, Thank you so much, Michelle. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you might also like episode 24, where I talked to Dr. Suhana Ahmed about overcoming postnatal depression and how she herself did that with the background of her being a psychiatrist. Just to let you know, that episode will be called Leaders with Babies because at the time we were called Leaders with Babies. And if the podcast has been helpful to you and you want to take it further and get a practical community to support you, then definitely consider joining the fellowship program. It's open now for applications. Everything you need to know is on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash fellowship. And on the fellowship, you get access to inspirational role models who have experience of bringing up kids whilst progressing their careers, support with practical challenges, for example, workload or saying no. You'll develop your vision and make a plan for what you want to do with your career and with your family life. And you'll do that in really supportive small group sessions. And you'll also access research about what causes career progression and how to implement this practically in the context of being a busy working 
mum or dad. In the last cohort, more than half have got promoted or got additional senior responsibility by the end of the programme. So it's really lovely to see that people are making a change as a result of it. And also, if you do want to help the podcast in some shape or form, you can do so by sharing it with a couple of friends or leaving a five-star review. At the moment, the world of podcasting is heavily male-dominated and most big podcasts are male-led, even though more listeners are female. So if you want to help change that, then please help to increase its visibility by sharing it and leaving reviews. Thank you for all your support and see you next week.